welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As a student of presidential history, one topic that has always fascinated me is how our presidents interact with one another, be it individuals with presidential aspirations, the current holder of the office, or an ex-president ready to throw in his two cents. Members of the presidential club can sometimes have quite complicated relationships, no matter where in their careers they interact. Even those that are long since gone, when a new person takes residence at the White House, can often find themselves being drawn back into the conversation, either for praise or as an example of what not to do. Thus, this episode will focus on how other presidents interacted with Harrison and what they had to say about him. George Washington and John Adams both played a pivotal role in Harrison's early career. Washington gave him his first commission in the Army, while John Adams appointed him to his first civil office as Secretary of the Northwest Territory, and then to even higher office as Governor of the Indiana Territory as that was split off from what was to become Ohio. While I found that Harrison at least met Washington and he did correspond with Adams, neither man seems from my research to have had much to say about the young Virginian turned Midwesterner. Why would they, honestly? He was one among a multitude of folks who floated in and out of the attention of both of these men during the latter point of their lengthy public careers. They required more than a few words or handshake to get their sustained attention. However, Harrison would have more of an opportunity to make an impression on Thomas Jefferson, as he would spend the majority of his career as governor under Jefferson's presidency, and the two would come to develop a trusted working relationship. Jefferson demonstrated his confidence in Harrison when he wrote to his Secretary of War in August 1802 that, quote, it seems absolutely necessary, after giving Governor Harrison our general ideas, to leave matters very much to his discretion. Indeed, he often took a hands-off approach when it came to affairs in the Indiana Territory. In 1805, when the authority was given to Jefferson to pick five out of ten nominees submitted by the territorial legislature to serve as the legislative council, Jefferson deferred to Harrison's judgment and let him choose the five, only urging him to not choose, quote, dishonest men, federalists, or land jobbers. Part of it stems from the nature of the office that Harrison was in. Being so far away from the seat of government, with communications being slow, there was a limit to how much influence Jefferson could exert, so he would either have to trust Harrison to carry out his will effectively or replace him with someone he could trust. As he remained in office through Jefferson's two terms of office, it seems that Harrison was seen by Jefferson as someone in whom he could put his faith. After many years in the office, as the drums of war beat ever stronger in the lead-up to the War of 1812, Harrison's role began to shift from a civilian office to military command. However, he would initially find Jefferson's successor to have less confidence in his abilities in his new role. Though Madison had praised Harrison in his official statement to Congress on the Battle of Tippecanoe, describing, quote, the collected firmness which distinguished their commander, Harrison, on an occasion requiring the utmost exertions of valor and discipline. In September 1812, Madison would write to Secretary of War James Monroe, while contemplating replacing General James Winchester with Harrison, asking, quote, is Harrison, if substituted for General Winchester, everything that the public would wish? without disparaging his qualifications and allowing their great superiority to Winchester's. His military knowledge must be limited, and a more extensive weight of character would be of material importance. Ultimately, the order would go forth that month for Harrison to take command, and Harrison would gain Madison's confidence enough that, years later, when Harrison came under criticism for his frank letter to Colombian President Simon Bolivar, following his tenure as U.S. minister to that nation, Madison would write to Harrison in support, 
with Madison saying, quote, Whatever may have been the different views taken of the letter to Bolivar, none can contest the intellectual literary merit stamped upon it, or be insensible to the Republican feelings which prompted it. Coming from the guy called the father of the Constitution, that's saying a good bit. James Monroe was a bit more convinced of Harrison's abilities on the outbreak of the War of 1812, as he wrote to Henry Clay in September of that year, after Madison had made his decision to put Harrison in command of forces in the Northwest, that, quote, the command of this force is committed to Governor Harrison, who, it is believed, will justify the favorable expectation of him by those who are best acquainted with his merit. Harrison and Monroe would correspond during the war, as Monroe took over the duties of Secretary of War, and Harrison would serve in Congress during Monroe's presidency. However, though my research has turned up little of Monroe's recorded thoughts on Harrison, it does seem that Harrison didn't think that President Monroe held him in high admiration, and the feeling was apparently mutual. Harrison wrote to his nephew, Benjamin Harrison, in March 1825 that, quote, I believe there was never a greater hypocrite on earth than James Monroe. His enmity to me has been without bounds and is altogether unaccountable. At least the causes to which he is attributed are, in my estimation, altogether insufficient. There may be some other which time may develop. Now, I do have to admit that I haven't fully determined yet why Harrison felt so strongly about the last of the Founding Fathers to serve as president. As we discussed in episode 22, the end of Monroe's presidency is when Harrison started to experience his financial difficulties, and he had asked Monroe for a posting as U.S. Minister to Mexico in order to ensure himself a steady stream of income. Monroe ultimately did not give him this appointment, so this ill feeling could be related to that or there could be other factors at play. It's too early for me to make a definite call on that. However, with Monroe's successor, John Quincy Adams, there is no doubt as to how Adams felt about Harrison. Now, John Quincy Adams was not one to mince words when he had an opinion on someone or something, and he often had an opinion on things. Harrison spent the majority of Adams's presidency asking him for a diplomatic posting, or a posting with the army, or with the administration. He got friends to ask on his behalf. It finally got to the point that Adams wrote in his diary one day in May 1828, quote, Mr. Vance, a member from the state of Ohio, came to recommend the appointment of General Harrison as minister to the Republic of Columbia. This person's thirst for lucrative office is absolutely rabid. Vice President, Major General of the Army, Minister to Columbia, for each of these places, he has been this very session as hot in pursuit as a hound on the scent of a hare. He is a bavard of a lively and active but shallow mind, a political adventurer, not without talents, but self-sufficient, vain, and indiscreet. He has, withal, a faculty of making friends, and is incessantly importuning them for their influence in his favor. As our regular listeners know, Adams did ultimately grant him the posting as U.S. Minister to Columbia, but one does wonder if he did so just to shut Harrison up. Adams's feelings about Harrison becoming president were a bit less exasperated, but could hardly be described as warm. As he wrote in December 1840, quote, he, Harrison, is not the choice of three-fourths of those who have elected him. His present popularity is all artificial. There is little confidence in his talents or his firmness. If he is not found time-serving, demagogical, unsteady, and western-sectional, he will more than satisfy my present expectations. Harrison comes in upon a hurricane. God grant he may not go out upon a wreck. 
Adams was a bit more generous in his recollections of Harrison upon his passing, as he described his successor in office as, quote, amiable and benevolent. Sympathy for his suffering and his fate is the prevailing sentiment of his fellow citizens. Andrew Jackson, however, had no sympathy for his rival for best general in the War of 1812. Some of it might have stemmed from the comparisons that were made between the two and their leadership during the war. Some of it might have been due to Harrison's having voted in favor of at least one censure resolution against Jackson during his tenure in Congress. Part of it could have been that Jackson wasn't a fan of Henry Clay, and he and Harrison were, by political necessity, close, even if behind the scenes they may not have seen eye to eye. Another factor could have been that Jackson was just an ornery Gus. Who knows? What we do know is that, even during his presidency, Jackson was referring to Harrison as, quote, Clay's stool pigeon. By 1840, with Harrison facing off against Jackson's hand-picked successor, Old Hickory was writing the editor of the Nashville Union that he had, quote, never admired General Harrison as a military man, or considered him as possessing the qualities which constitute the commander of an army. Jackson would then give public speeches denouncing Harrison as, quote, the chosen candidate of the apostate Republicans, the abolitionist, and the Hartford Convention Federalist, and warning that his election would mean that, quote, your constitutional liberties are perhaps gone forever, and the United States, quote, may end like that of ancient republics. These were pretty harsh words that flew in the face of the Founders' dreams of a civil republic without parties. But as with all things Jackson, the antagonism didn't end once the ballots were counted. Instead, he was writing to Amos Kendall in February 1841 about the president-elect, referring to him as, quote, the mock hero. Even in death, Jackson would not let it go. Upon hearing the news of Harrison's death, Jackson wrote to Francis Blair that, quote, A kind and overruling providence has interfered to prolong our glorious union and happy Republican system, which General Harrison and his cabinet was preparing to destroy under the dictation of that profligate demagogue, Henry Clay. So basically, General Jackson is saying that folks should be dancing in the streets and that the world is a brighter place because Harrison is dead. I'm picturing Dorothy's arrival and the munchkins singing Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead in The Wizard of Oz, with Harrison, of course, being cast as the Wicked Witch. Though Van Buren may not have been Harrison's biggest fan, he was at least able to maintain his composure in public. As we noted in our last episode, Van Buren let bygones be bygones and went to visit Harrison upon Harrison's arrival in Washington, D.C. prior to his inauguration. Van Buren hosted a dinner party for him and even offered to vacate the White House early if that would give Harrison a chance to rest before assuming office. Behind the scenes, though, he was not quite so magnanimous. At some point prior to Harrison's inauguration, Van Buren wrote that, quote, The president-elect is the most extraordinary man I ever saw. He does not seem to realize the vast importance of his elevation. He talks and thinks with as much ease and vivacity as if he were a young man. He is tickled with the presidency as a young woman is with a new bonnet. Though I haven't found where Van Buren expressed any deep distress over the loss of Harrison. Unlike Jackson, it doesn't seem like he was putting his shoes on to go and dance on Harrison's grave, either. This brings us to Harrison's successors in office. His immediate successor, naturally, would have to deal the most with Harrison's legacy. But thus far, all of Tyler's references to Harrison that I found have been from the time prior to the election 
As early as December 1838, Tyler saw the contest for the Whig nomination for president as being won between Harrison and Henry Clay, both born in Virginia, and noted as such in a letter to Henry Wise. While talking about the two, Tyler described Harrison as, quote, a noble scion of a patriotic stock, whose family connections in Virginia are among the numbers of my best friends. Upon Harrison receiving the nomination and Tyler getting the vice presidential nomination, he wrote in December of Harrison's, quote, long and faithful services, his early Republican creed, and devoted advocacy of the free principles and of popular rights. Whatever Tyler truly thought, it was clear that he felt that he could ideologically get behind Harrison and speak on his behalf. He certainly did so as the election neared to a group of Van Buren supporters who reached out to him, going so far as to compare Harrison to numerous past presidents in the course of his defense. Tyler wrote to them that, quote, If you had desired me to make good my declaration, that through all the changes of his public life, General Harrison has followed the precepts of General Washington, I would promptly have done so. I unhesitatingly declare it as my firm conviction that William Henry Harrison is qualified to guard and promote the liberties and happiness of his country, because he is the stern and unflinching advocate of popular rights and the uncompromising opponent of the bold and daring assumption of powers, which have of late years been claimed and exercised by the chief executive magistrate of this union. He would carry with him into the administration the principles of Jefferson. He is an honest man, a Republican in principle, and a patriot in practice. Harrison had other future presidents on his side in 1840 as well. Millard Fillmore was a U.S. representative at the time and was involved in the Whig Party campaign efforts in New York. When Harrison died, Fillmore was tapped to eulogize him in Fillmore's hometown of Buffalo, New York. In his remarks, he described the late president by saying, quote, William Henry Harrison, the hero, the statesman, and the patriot, who has inscribed his name on the brightest page of our history, sleeps the sleep of death. Likewise, Abraham Lincoln was on the campaign trail for Harrison in 1840. He wrote to a friend in January of that year that, quote, The nomination of Harrison takes first rate. You know I'm never sanguine, but I believe we, i.e. Whigs, will carry the state. A great many of the grocery sort of Van Buren men, as formerly, are out for Harrison. However, Lincoln's admiration for Harrison was present years before he got the Whig nomination for president. He wrote an editorial in 1838 urging Harrison's nomination and asserting that, quote, when an individual's hairs have grown gray and his eyes dim in the service of his country, it seems to us, if his countrymen are wise and polite, they will so reward him as to encourage the youth of that country to follow his example. Though Harrison didn't carry Illinois, it was clear that he inspired the rail splitter turn young politico from Springfield. The last contemporary words on Harrison that I've been able to find are from the then 18-year-old Rutherford B. Hayes. Being in Ohio at the time, it is likely that young Rudd was a first-hand witness to some of the electioneering going on in 1840. He wrote in his diary on November 5th that, quote, the long agony is over. The whirlwind has swept over the land, and General Harrison is undoubtedly elected president. I never was more elated by anything in my life. As is evidenced by Harrison's contemporary place amongst the lesser-known presidents, the whirlwind and elation tempered with future generations. However, there are still two more presidents that I've been able to find who commented on Harrison. The first was Harry S. Truman, who is known for being a student of presidential history. Years after his presidency, he wrote a letter to his former Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, musing over his predecessors as chief executive. Though he did recall Harrison, it wasn't fondly, as Truman described Harrison as, quote, a stuffed shirt who insisted on riding a white horse to the Capitol. 
If you think that's bad, you should see what he wrote at one point about Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. Truman was one who let folks know just what he thought. Whether it was out of guilt for maligning the hero of the Thames, or just because he forgot to mail it off, Truman ultimately ended up not sending the letter. Thankfully, it was preserved in his papers for future generations. The last instance of a presidential mention of Harrison that's come up in my research thus far is during a speech delivered at Berkeley Plantation in November 2007. Then-President George W. Bush was delivering remarks at an event there and made sure to note Berkeley's most famous resident along with one of the most known facts about Harrison's short presidency when he said, quote, Over the years, Over the years, presidents have visited Berkeley. President William Henry Harrison called it home. As a matter of fact, it was here where he composed the longest inauguration speech in history. <laughs> he went on for nearly two hours. You don't need to worry, I'm not going to try to one-up him today. Likewise, I think we're going to end this episode here rather than going for the two-hour mark. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and found it a fun diversion from our biographical narrative because the next episode is going to be all about death, literally, from beginning to end, death, death, death. Doesn't that sound like a rip-roaring time? Seriously, though, we've reached the point where we have to talk about the death of Harrison. We'll discuss the progression of his final illness, the precedent-setting aftermath, and what all of this meant for the presidency and the nation moving forward. Until then, please feel free to send your questions or comments to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or look us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. This episode came together with the able audio editing assistance of Andrew Feincook. Should you, like me, need his editing assistance for your audio projects, his email is andrew at fonkuk, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. If you'd like to compare his talents with my amateur audio editing skills, check out episodes 27 and back on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. The blog also has source information for this episode, and past episodes are also available on iTunes and Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time for the death of old Tippecanoe. Till then, take care, friends.